Hello there, and welcome to the Workplace Communication Podcast, a podcast dedicated to leaders who want to elevate team performance by refining leadership communication skills. And now, let's dive right in with your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. Welcome back again, everyone, to another episode of the Workplace Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPaquette. Today, we're speaking with Ian Hughes about reimagining society as a defense against dangerously disordered minds. Now, Ian is the author of Disordered Minds, How Dangerous Personalities Are Destroying Democracy. His background is in physics and psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and his current research focuses on the transformation to a more environmentally sustainable society that can better support human flourishing. What a great purpose. Ian, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So you were introduced to me uh, by a previous podcast guest, Frederick Golder, and I invite everyone to go and check out his episode if you have a moment. Uh, And as I said to you when we were starting, I'm really super interested about this topic um, and and its parallels or its application, I should say, into the workplace. So you have a really niche area of expertise. I'm going to start off just by asking you to describe a little bit more about what your niche expertise is and how you came to specializing in what you do. Okay, I guess Maybe I'd describe a little bit the journey that I've been on, particularly in the last number of years. Um, So I I grew up, I was born in Northern Ireland. I grew up there during the Troubles, during the the violent time that there was in in Northern Ireland. I studied physics. I did a PhD in physics, um, partly because I was hugely interested in science, but it was also, in retrospect, an escape from the chaos and the violence. Oh, interesting. yeah, Yeah. So like physics, atomic physics and cosmology is much easier to understand than violent societies. Mm. You know? So this was, uh, in the first instance, this was about um, physics. As I say, I was hugely interested in and still am. But it was also, there was a psychological part of this about escape from the, the chaos and violence that there was, was around. Um, so later, about 10 years ago then, um, I, I started writing about at the time, I was also, as you said, I, I studied psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and I came across issues like, you know, personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, psychopathy. I come across these ideas and these concepts, and that made a lot of sense to me in terms of some of the things that had happened in Northern Ireland and some of the things that were happening in other places where, unfortunately, violence is such a recurring and constant theme in human history. Uh, but these, the idea that some individuals are predisposed to violent behavior by virtue of the fact of having yeah, personality disorder, and we can talk about how that comes about if you like. But, mm-hmm. um, so I started writing. I started writing about this to try and get an understanding of how, when we talk about these disorders, can that explain the kind of recurring violence that we see constantly throughout history. Um, so that led to a quite a long, it took me six years to write the book. So there was a lot of research around the individual disorders themselves, but then also the question about how does an individual 
with one of these disorders come to influence an entire society? So when we ask this question, it isn't just a question of psychology. It's also a question of sociology. It's a question of politics. It's a question of, of society in general about how these people emerge and how they come to, to create such destruction and rip within society. Um, so that was the entry point into it. As I said, the psychoanalysis was a big influence in that, but it also meant that I had to go quite a bit beyond the individual psychology mm -hmm. and start thinking about and reading about history, reading about you know, looking for patterns, which I do in disordered minds. Um, so in the book, I was looking at four leaders in particular, so that's Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and Paul Potton from Cambodia. <clears throat> and in looking at those four case studies, if you like, I was looking, are there recurring patterns? Can you begin to understand the kind of reasons why these individuals came to power in the first place? What was empowering them? Why were so many people attracted to the violence that they were unleashing? Um, so that was a big part of the research as well. And then I guess the third part within the, the book then was, I'd always had this idea, but I researched it much, great, much more, that we have a misunderstanding of the basic function of democracy. You know? mm. We usually think of democracy as being elections. You know? But for me, democracy is much, much broader than elections. In fact, in the book, I came to describe democracy or conceptualize democracy as a series of defenses against the rise of these kind of disordered personalities. So you have everything from the original, so the Greeks having voting, the, the basis starting point for democracy, you like. The point of that was that you voted whoever won held the, the day, and the people who lost didn't violently rise up against them. The voting was a means of disagreeing non-violently, you know, and coming to consensus without violence. That was the basic function. Um, and then from there, if you go, go on, the other defenses like the rule of law, like the separation of powers so that there's not too much concentration of power, the separation of church and state. So all of these things, as I say, my conception of democracy then is, that, is one that it's not simply elections, it's not simply majority rule. And in fact, when you see cases where majority rule does hold sway, it usually leads to violence. You know, um, first off, when Frederick mentioned that he thought you may be a good guest, I already found, you know, your bio of physics and psychoanalytic psychology had me wondering, like, how in the world did he get from one to the next, right? Because those are very, very different fields and typically very different people who are attracted to those. So your explanation makes so much sense to me. Um, and so... What brought me to my curiosity around the societal patterns, use of control and power, were my own observations as a former speech-language pathologist looking at behavioral dynamics and behavioral change at the individual level. And as I expanded through my career working with, uh, in my former career, you know, with psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and learning that on the individual level and then noticing on the societal level for instance, in the work I'm doing today in leadership, but didn't go as far. I mean, I can see some things politically, but you, the things you are saying to me, they fit into so many, they make so many connections with what I know on the individual level and the um, group level, I guess. 
But to extrapolate that to that extent to the society and how democracy, the function it really plays, I would suspect, and maybe it's just because I'm not in the right field, but there's not that many people that know the things you're saying right now. Like, is that a fair guess? I think, well, there's a community that I'm part of who are on the same page on this and, you know. Um, yeah. So that includes, for example, Bandy Lee. You may have heard of Bandy Lee. She was the editor of the, there's a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump that Bandy um, edited. And that was, I think there were 36 mental health professionals who contributed to that book. Yeah. Richard Wood, who's a close colleague that I'm working with, Richard yeah. had a book on malignant narcissism. Um, and then the group that I'm working with in University College Cork, where we're, we're expanding this idea about yeah, trying to reimagine society that it functions better, as you said yeah, in the introduction. I'm so with you. <laughs> yeah. So I think the thinking is there. Mm -hmm. I think there's also, though, a lot of willful forgetting. Right. So I just had a conversation with somebody about this. I was saying how through COVID, I decided to take a step back from social media, uh, from media in general. And her reply to me was, yeah, there's so much going on on a societal level that we can't change. It gets to be too overwhelming. Whereas, in my opinion, to affect change, like we still need to be able to know what's going on and um, be able to engage with it. But when you say there's a willful ignorance, I get the sense that there's a sense of like helplessness sometimes around how. I think a lot of people see the patterns on a leadership level, but what can I ever do about that beyond voting for someone different if that's within my rights? Like, is that what you were saying there? Or I'm, I'm way off in how I'm interpreting what you were saying. I think what I mean by willful forgetting is even within political science, democracy isn't usually talked about in that kind of narrative. Oh, that it's a series of defenses against dangerous personalities, huh? But if you look at the history of democracy, as I said, already mentioned in you know ancient Greece, the voting system was introduced to stop violence. That was its primary purpose, that whenever the majority voted, there wasn't a violence broke out about disagreement. Mm -hmm. huh? When you move forward to the rest of those defences, yeah, so the rule of law was also about containing violence, the separation of powers, mm -hmm. yeah, not concentrating so much power in a single individual, yeah, yeah. Um, the separation of church and state within the United States, for example, that was based on the history of religious wars in Europe and trying to avoid that, yeah. that outcome. Yeah. The last couple of iterations of this, which I think we're going through at the moment, actually, yeah. I think democracy is now failing again. Yes. It, I've it, had it, those reflections too. Like it had to get to a recent point, you know, in the past few years for me to start recognizing the patterns of, oh, wait a second. This is seeming eerily familiar to things I've read yeah. in history books or learned at school. Mm. But you've probably seen those patterns for a long time coming. But oh. also the last iterations, which came out of World War II, eh, was about human rights, human rights and law, you know? So like at one of the certain Nazi leaders at the Nuremberg trials was saying, it was our right to murder the Jews. It happened within, it was legal within Germany and the German-administered territories. It was legal. We had a right to do it. And so the idea of international law that holds like the International mm -hmm. Criminal Court 
that says, no, that's actually not all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That came out of violence, came out of enormous violence. Wow. So these wow. iterations, I, th- I think if you look back on the history of democracy, the people who are putting those things in place absolutely knew what they were doing. Mm. They were doing it consciously as a defense against the recurrence of what had just happened. Well, and so what I was thinking too there was like, oh yeah, that's kind of how unions were created, right? That's where um, human rights laws in the workplace, like anti-harassment, like all these workers' rights probably stem from that same need, right, to protect against that. And then the other thing I thought uh, when you shared that about the trial, I thought moving back to the individual level to say something like that, right, like whether the law tells you you can or cannot kill someone, like to have the thought that it is your right to kill someone and to argue that that is your right, like there has to be the thought that came to my mind was you have to be pretty dead inside to be able to um, argue that point. Yeah. I think when you're talking there, Lindsay, I'm reminded there was a quote, I think, um, Anne Applebaum, I think it was, who had written about Stalin's gulag. I think the quote's from her. And she said, this isn't written because it won't happen again. This is written because it will. Mm. Right. The history was written because this is happening. This is happening now. It will happen again. Yeah. So we have to understand it. And when you say, absolutely, when you said to do that, you have to be dead inside. And this is where I think the personality disorder for me comes in. Because in personality disorders like psychopathy, for example, psychopaths, they have absolutely no conception of relationship with another human being. Human beings are, you know, like wood or like inanimate objects for them. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't have any qualms or any feeling whenever, if they were to murder someone. Yeah. With narcissistic personality disorder, malignant per- narcissism and so on, they are similar in terms of their absence of empathy. Mm. Yeah. So on an individual level, it's quite horrifying when you see these individuals and the way that they are able to absolutely have zero empathy for other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What then becomes even more disturbing is how entire nations or entire societies can also adopt that position. Yes. Yeah. So I'd love to relate this back to what you said initially in your explanation when you were telling your life story about how you grew up in Northern Ireland um, during troubled time. I, in fact, visited Ireland as a much younger woman, um, during some of the violence and the bombings and was too scared to go visit Northern Ireland during those times. And you grew up not having a choice but to be exposed to that and live through that on a daily basis. And I have always been very curious through my background and experience with mental health, although I I'm, certainly do not have experience with personality disorders per se. Uh, but I've been very curious at the whole nurture nature question. And my impression is that there is a very high um, correlation or possible causality, I would think, I don't know what research shows, but between trauma and development of um, such personalities. And I really would love to hear whether there's that holds any weight and whether you think that has an impact on how these types of personalities 
um, develop. Yeah. I guess from a background in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Ah, that's why I want your opinion. You know. <laughs> but, well, that field would be very much focused on infant development and care during early stages of infancy. So the metaphors that I have in mind about how these things develop very much come from that sort of early infancy and absence of care. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, overt trauma. It can be neglect. Yeah. 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 Like families going through a war and the parents are preoccupied. I mean, look what's mm -hmm. going on in Ukraine. I mean, I'm not saying this isn't happening, but, you know, the chances that they're having the opportunity to have warm family dinners and read their kids' stories and snuggle in bed, very different than my reality, of course. Yeah. So I guess in the nature nurture thing, it's very, very interesting because to be honest, Lindsay, the answers aren't yet known to these. Still not clear. Yeah, Yeah, because not everyone exposed to trauma develops a personality disorder, right? I mean, I don't at all want the listeners to think. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And and also not everyone who's, you know, neglect, experiences Mm. neglect and so forth. Yeah. But in the nature-nurture thing, it seems to be psychopaths are quite different from narcissistic personalities. Okay. Psychopathy seems to have quite a genetic component. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Whereas with the narcissistic personality disorder, that seems to be much more on the side of nurture. Hmm. And if I can describe to you how I understand, you know, we've got this far without mentioning Trump, but how (laughs) I understand someone like Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Do tell. Who is (laughs) exceedingly narcissistic. Yeah. Very low level of empathy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But how to understand, I've got an an image that I learned from psychoanalytic literature. So, about development, early infant development, yeah? And I would say people who have narcissistic personality disorder don't get very far. They don't even get out of infancy in terms of their inner psychological development. Really? Out of Um, infancy? Wow. So if I can explain what I mean by that, yeah? Mm -hmm, So for most of us, yeah, during childhood, we develop, you know, the idea of an ego and a superego, yeah? So our superego is our conscience. And our ego is kind of our center of decision-making and how our sense of ourselves. And for most of us during development, we end up as adults with a reasonably coherent ego yeah, and a reasonably benign superego. We're not always beating up on ourselves. We're not mm-hmm. always you know, in fear of our superego. So we have a relatively, obviously there are variations on this, but benign inner world, if you like. Yeah? Okay. What happens with narcissistic personality disorder is that neither of those functions develop. Okay. In fact, they develop in a malignant way, if you like. Huh? Okay. So the first one is the sense of ego doesn't form. And the sense of superego becomes what's called an ego ideal. It's a really punishing, really detrimental, frightening for the individual, their own conscience, our superego, wouldn't call it, is terrifying. And the way you can understand this is that you imagine a young child, someone who's three years old, a little girl, a little boy, and they're trying to get their parents' attention, which we all do. That's part of growing up. You need the attention. You need the love. You need the care. You need to be internalizing all of the caring people around you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they say, look at me. I can dance or I can draw. I can do this. Look at what I've done. And instead of their mother and father saying, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. 
well done, well done. Yeah, Kerr would say, that's absolute rubbish. You are rubbish. Why did you even bother trying that? You'll never do anything. And then slaps them. Yeah. So rather than internalizing a sense of self-worth, they never get that far. Mm. And instead of getting a superego that's saying, this is their sense of right and wrong. Most things that you're doing are fine. But when you cross the line, I'm going to make you feel guilty about it. But you have to cross the line. Instead, they have this punishing superego, which is constantly telling them that they're worthless. Right. This explains why they're always looking for external attention. Trump is always looking for external. They're looking for that validation that they are doing well. Is that what you're saying? They have never internalized it. Mm. They're vacuum inside. So they're looking for that external validation so that they don't fall apart. Okay. Okay. The one way that this struck me really forcefully with Trump, if you remember when he had COVID and he was in hospital and the doctors were telling him and he insisted on going out in the cavalcade, he couldn't stay alone in a room for a day without getting the external validation that most of us get just by virtue of that we're human. Yeah, yeah. It's not there. And because it's not there, they're constantly in danger of collapsing internally. Like essentially having a breakdown would be like a common terminology the listeners would resonate with. Okay, that's what I thought you were saying. So first off, you're making me want to go back to school and uh, become a psychoanalytic psychologist. Um, My sister and I always talk about how much we love to learn and everything you're saying is so absolutely fascinating. And I know there's a lot of talk about how um, I've seen studies that say like X percentage of CEOs have narcissistic personality disorder. I don't know if it's a study or if it's, you know, just somebody writing that as a theory. And I certainly am not trying to say here to all the CEOs listening that I think that you all have a narcissistic personality disorder, but I can certainly see tendencies or personality traits where it would make it easier. I mean, if you are low in empathy, it's really easy to do what you need to make money and not worry so much about, you know, whether your employees are exposed to COVID or whether you just promoted them yesterday, but now a contract's fallen through and you need to let them all go. Like it's, uh, if you don't have that conscience piece, I can see where you get growth and, um, yeah, faster. So yeah. Is there any concrete evidence towards uh, that belief that there is a tendency to have more narcissists in leadership positions than in the general population? Yes, absolutely. There's evidence. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And particular professions are more susceptible Mm -hmm. to that. Um, And again, whenever I describe this, it won't be surprising. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The more hierarchical the organization, right. the more centralized power, you know, the less there is in terms of checks and balances on power, right. the more competitive that employees are meant to be with one another, yeah, the more ruthless and yeah, the more financial reward there is or the more status that there is attached to particular positions. Right. These are all the things that are going to attract narcissists. So interesting. Okay, so let's look at the other way then. And then let's talk about, because I'm curious, what are the tendencies that lead people to continue working in those conditions? Because there are certainly large organizations with those criteria you've just described that 
keep employees. So I don't mean diagnose them. I just mean, what are some of the tendencies you see? I guess this is coming to the research that I'm working on at the moment. Huh? Mm-hmm. So far, we've talked mostly about the individuals. Yeah? yeah, And now we're beginning to talk about the organizations. Mm-hmm. Huh? But I think there's also that question about how these individuals can come to have such appeal for large numbers of people. Yeah, yeah. So Let's talk about that. That's the question, really. The answer is yeah. the same. Yeah. It's because it's normalized in our culture. Right. Good God, it is. Right? Yeah. And this is what I'm work- working on at the moment. Huh? What brought me to this idea, you know, what you said at the beginning, Lindsay, about reimagining society. We need to reimagine society for better sustainability and better human flourishing. Yeah. When I was writing Disordered Minds, it was like, how do we stop these people? Okay, democracy mm. is the way. Democracy, it, it isn't working very well at the moment. But if we were to put some more checks and balances in democracy, it's actually much, much bigger than that. Yeah. Because democracy is part of a culture of economics, which can be ruthlessly competitive, which normalizes inequality, yes. which normalizes losers in inverted commas. Right. Yeah. And um, which is part of, you know, Almost the social institutions that we're part of, so politics, economics, technology, the way the technology is, break things and let's see what happens, regardless of the consequences. Yeah. yeah. Um, religion, mm-hmm. uh, gender relations, we can talk about that. Huh? Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of most of these leaders, virtually all of these leaders in history are men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're men is because the traits of severe narcissism match very well with what we're taught is supposed to be the ideal man yeah. in terms of hyper-competitive, yeah. aggressive, dominant. Yeah, Right. So it's almost like these ladders, you know, the, the, again, I think it's uh, Neural Harari, I think. He wrote Sapiens and he talks about the template that humanity has used for societies and organizations from time immemorial is the pyramid. It's a hierarchical structure. Absolutely. That yeah. It's, an, it's a structure of oppression, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it is baked into, mm. that's normal. That's normal human yeah. society in the way that we have built it. Yeah. So if we're serious about addressing this, which as I say, we need to be serious about this because yeah. this current structure, these individuals who get into power, continually drive us to new barbarisms. Mm-hmm. They continuously bring us yeah. back to yeah. destruction. So if we're serious about addressing this, which we should be, then we have to fundamentally reimagine our t- have conversations about the way that we structure society right. from everything from economics Absolutely. to politics to, to gender. Well, where my thoughts are going now is early in the pandemic, you know, when like the world shut down, pretty much the world shut down for two uh, weeks. Yes. And then yes. it started opening up. And my son, who was 13 and quite observant and recognizes patterns well, said to me, this is so stupid. Why can't everyone just stay in their houses for two weeks and then it would be done like it would go away? You know, he doesn't necessarily have a grasp. I mean, he understands some of the complexities of the world, but yeah, I was like, well, babe, everyone would have to cooperate to do that. Like, that's the underlying issue here, right? Like, the whole world, every country, every leader, every individual, that's a big thing. This is an uplifting conversation for the listeners in some ways, right? In that 
that is such a huge, huge barrier in terms of how do we get that to happen in a coordinated way? Because there are so many different countries. It can't happen just in a few. Um, do you have thoughts on that? I mean, and, and I'll, I will say for the listeners, because I think there's an application organizationally here too, in that we see these swells within organizations too, right? When certain personalities are replaced and then the whole culture of the organization starts to change, but it's hard to turn the entire ship, right? So is there any hope? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up the pandemic, yeah? Because for me, the pandemic was a revelation. Oh, yeah? in what way? So what happened in Ireland was everyone cooperated. Right? It was quite amazing. I got to right? move to Ireland. Everyone cooperated. Yeah. In the centre of Dublin here where I'm living, you'd go out for a walk. The buses were entirely empty. They were only being put on for care workers who were going to work. Virtually everyone cooperated. Mm. What happened, how I would characterise what happened, and it didn't just happen in Ireland, it mm. happened yeah, in lots of countries. All the Indigenous clients I work with, I kept watching what they were doing, thinking, gosh, I wish we could do that down here. Like they, There's a sense of community and love for one another and collectivity <laughs> that is yeah. missing in my culture. Whereas I sat here as someone who has a chronic illness with a sense of it's every man for themselves. Like as long as you're not going to die, you don't care. <laughs> so what you've just said there about the sense of community and care for one yeah. another, I'm using the term sacred ordinary to describe that. Mm. Yeah. The sacred ordinary and what happened, what I saw happening in Ireland was that all the time we have two societies. We have mm. the society that works. It's the real society. It works on the basis of sacred ordinary. It works on the relationships between people. Yeah. It works on the love between people and families and friends, on the care that people have for one another. It's not based on money. Yeah. It's based on reciprocality. Yes, yeah? yes. It's, di based, reciprocality. it's on different. It's different values. It's not about yes. competition on status. It's an entirely different society that operates in an entirely different set of values. Mm. And it's there all the time. But it is continually swamped out by the layer of mm. politics and dominance and leadership that we have on top of us. Yeah. That mostly operates on entirely different values, yeah, yeah. of competitiveness, of you know, getting better on one another, of economic gain, of status and so forth. And for me, what happened in the pandemic, that layer disappeared. And you could see the underlying reality of, of what really keeps society going. Oh, interesting. Well, and you know, so I, I said to you well, before we started recording, I'm currently doing an inclusive leadership certificate through Animal Leadership. Great, great course for anyone who's looking for something like that. Um, but they were taught one of the themes that has come up again and again is the need for everyone on an individual level to work on emotional regulation so that you can engage in conversations around oppression in a productive and regulated way. And there's been several questions and comments that have come up from people with minoritized identities saying they shouldn't have to have the emotional labor of having to be the one who stays regulated when faced with a bully and, a, you know, like these types of behaviors, yeah. which is absolutely true. And also, the leaders of the course keep saying that is also very true is, yes, it's not fair. And also, one of the tactics of oppression is to burn you out so you can't keep putting up those defenses you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why I think we need a joined up thinking 
about the, the scale of the problem. Yeah. Because yeah. again, even going back to the way that you're framing this, it's about individuals having to protect themselves and yeah. survive. And that's not within how it should a, be. Yeah. yeah. Within a culture that's oppressing. Yeah. It's the culture that's the problem. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's certainly a very, very complex problem. And I think the thing that your work is doing, amongst other things, is bringing awareness to it. Like one of the things they're saying in this course, which is so true, is when you can't see the patterns, you can't make different decisions. And your work, I think, is really putting those patterns in front of people to reflect on. Um, and the challenge, of course, is getting the people who have the awareness of the patterns into positions where they can affect the change. I find that's like a tricky, um, like getting those people into being president or whatnot, or like look at through the pandemic watching like New Zealand, you know, it was neat to kind of see, huh, look at how this can be led. I wasn't watching Ireland. Um, so on that level, which I noticed that this sort of apply to organizations, but where, like zooming back out to the societal level, how do we get there? Like, is it at the individual level until there's enough of a swell that the defenses are strong enough? I think it's a joining up. I think lots of it is happening already. Okay. Yeah. And it's trying to understand and collectively understand mm -hmm. what it is that's happening already. Yeah. So if I can give you. Just a couple of things, yeah? Yeah. So in the, the work that I do around sustainability, climate change and sustainability, yeah. the, the dominant narrative around how we're going to deal with climate change is one that says what we need to do is we need new technologies. We need clean energy. Yeah. We need to be cycling, get rid of it. We need electric vehicles. It's a very technology-oriented, yeah? yeah? So we're going to adopt these new technologies and the society will change. In fact, not a lot will change apart from the fact that we're using different technologies. It's not questioning the fundamental shape and organization of mm. society. Right. Amitav Ghosh, the author, comes up with a very different idea of what the type of change that's needed. And it's not just that technological change will have to happen. Mm. But what he says is happening, and it's happening, you know, is that modernity is questioning itself. So modernity brought some good things, yeah? It brought some good things in terms of rationality. It brought some good things in terms of material betterment, better health, yeah? It brought some good stuff. Yeah. But there was a lot of very negative stuff in too. Yeah. It was built on colonialization. It was built on racism. It was based mm -hmm. on anti-women, yeah? Mm -hmm. Amitav Gosh says it's like the return of the repressed. These things are now coming back and, and saying, okay, we're here. This is going to be a different change and a more fundamental change than you think it's going to be. So Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, yeah, the peace movement, which has disappeared almost, these movements that fundamentally question the foundations and say, no, it isn't just about changing technology and we'll keep everything else as it is. Thank you very much. Yeah. So that is happening. That shift in narrative is happening. So I think it's about more of us recognizing the framing around which what's happening. Can I mention one other concept Absolutely, that I found yeah. really Please useful? Yeah? Because we hear, and certainly we've heard in the project, and reimagine economics, but you can't reimagine economics. This free market economics, there are laws of nature. Yeah, you talk about reimagining religion. You can't do that; it's laid down in law. Yeah. So one of the things we have to do is absolutely challenge 
any kind of fixed rigidity that mm-hmm. says the ways that we are living, the structures that we are living within are absolutely fixed. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The concept I was going to mention to you is this idea of consensual knowledge. Oh, I only came across this recently. Yeah? Okay. Consensual knowledge is the knowledge that we mostly operate off, particularly governments and policymakers. Huh? Okay. So the consensual is the agreed knowledge. Yeah. yeah? Because something is a fact doesn't mean that it gets into consensual knowledge. Consensual knowledge is a power play. So if the scientists and technologists and so on look at life and they're advising the government, it's going to be a technology-based consensual knowledge. Yes, We're going to dismiss indigenous knowledge. We're going to dismiss arts and humanities knowledge as secondary. Yeah. So consensual knowledge that we operate off is a power-negotiated knowledge that lots of factual knowledge is excluded from. And also, lots of nonsense, non-factual knowledge is included in consensual. Yeah. I have to say that this brings me again to COVID because I thought COVID was such a beautiful example of how, I think, correct me if I'm using this wrong, but what becomes consensual knowledge is not necessarily research-based. My sister happens to have a background as an epidemiologist in infectious disease. It's not what she does anymore, but she knows what she's talking about in this field. And so she would feed information to me. And I remember in the early days when the government was saying, oh, masks, you don't need to wear masks. They don't do anything. And my sister and I kept saying, I think they're saying that because there's not enough masks in the stores and they don't want her to be like a, a riot over masks. Mm-hmm. But we could see the discourse in society was overall a belief that, well, if our government is telling us that masks aren't needed, then masks aren't needed. And then all of a sudden, the consensual knowledge shifted to, oh, now you need masks. Yeah. And then, oh, now yeah. it's N95s. I have a really hard time understanding how it is so easy for some to accept conceptual knowledge as fact to me that is a real big problem we're facing right now in society is maybe a lack of awareness of the difference between the two and the critical thinking not to say people can't critically think but that there's always a critical thought process around information that is presented to you and the source and the veracity yeah i think it's also not just about information that's presented to us it's also about the way that we live our lives Mm. What yeah. we take to be the norms and values that we operate by. Yeah. 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 For me, working with Indigenous clients was like such a mind shift in that, right? All these things that I took for truths, all of a sudden I'm exposed mm-hmm. to a culture where those are not their truths. And it was this shifting period of like, wait a second, uh, you know, because until you have exposure to different things and hence the argument for diversity, right? Because that's where you can build some of those skills to question, I think, some of what we take as norms, like when you were saying earlier about what men are praised for in our society, right? Younger, I just accepted that as Mm -hmm. that's what being a man is. Yeah. Then I got older and (laughs) a little bit wiser. (laughs) Yeah. I think also in the pandemic, one of the things, to my mind, that really came out starkly, yeah, was the value that society puts on different professions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
So yeah. like care workers, the, the health workers, the people who were deemed essential workers in the pandemic aren't the highest paid in society. Know, right? Yeah. Yeah. I am. And so yeah, I was reading something. I'd, I was writing a review of a, a book recently. Huh? And the book kept using the terms, was it, um, high skill knowledge workers. Yeah. Okay. Which our society values really yeah. highly. Highly skilled knowledge workers. Yeah. They were the ones in the pandemic who were told they could stay at home. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I think we should use, instead of high-skilled knowledge workers, we should use the phrase highly remunerated but not essential yeah, for society Yeah, absolutely, workers. right? Yeah. It was an interesting, as I was a young graduate, I was in healthcare and I had done a master's and my starting salary was 38000 And then my husband had done a college degree in France, moved to Canada, and his starting salary was something like, I don't remember, 67, like it was significantly higher than mine. And that was my first awareness in the world of like, wait a second, how does this make any sense? You know, and there are so many examples of that. And I do wonder, you look at what childcare workers make and they were an essential service and they were exposing themselves to COVID pretty well through all the runny noses and that there have been very few, if any, measures to change that. Like that's the bigger problem within it is that, okay, we build this awareness, but there's not necessarily a change that comes after. And I do think that there needs to be um, enough pushback from society to, yeah. Think it, going back to earlier in our conversation, if we devalue care, if we mm. marginalize that, and we valorize competitiveness and high-earning professions and you know status and so mm. forth, we're building the ladder for the dangerous personality oh disorders gosh. to control us. So I was just thinking, gosh, I don't even know how to conclude this conversation because we've talked about so many different things. And that is it. Like that is the key message, what you just said there. Can I get you to repeat that? Because I think that is such like an important point for the listeners to really retain. I'd say as long as we continue to devalue the essential elements of society like care yeah, and instead valorize competitiveness, status, you know, hyper-masculinity, as long as we continue to do that, we are building ladders for the dangerous personality disorders to climb up and control all of us. Wow. That is so powerful. And I think it has huge application in society. I think it has huge application within organizations. And within our personal lives, I think at all levels, and I think it's not just not valuing it in terms of what others do, but checking in with ourselves about where our behaviors are reflecting that we value those things, whether we truly do or not. And I know for myself, I know deep down that I am not someone who values those things. And yet I sometimes find myself caught up in behaviors mm -hmm. that suggest that perhaps that is what I value because that internalized training or whatever you're going to call it, um, socialization sometimes gets a little stronger and I have to slow down and check in with myself and see, are these decisions really in line? And the tricky part there I find is that... What helps you climb up the ladder is emulating those behaviors. And so it's scary to let some of them go. But I think your message of 
that is what's part of what undoes the ladder, gives some strength and ability to uh, step into that scary space potentially. Yeah. I think we've had these ideas for thousands of years huh, about yeah. how we flatten that pyramid. It yeah. is about care. Yeah. yeah. It, it is about conviviality and consensual behavior and cooperation. Yeah. yeah. Not allowing centralization of power, not being fixated on materialism to the expense of, right. of everything else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty we, wild we we're still here, right? We have to figure out why. Yeah. Yeah. This has given so much fantastic content. I just want to keep talking to you for hours, but um, I really hope for the listeners, this has brought in some elements. This is a, a bit of a different episode than what we talk about often, but I hope it's brought in some elements of reflection and the parallels to the workplace, but even the applications to your life outside of that, because it's so also intertwined. Um, yeah, I just hope it's really brought some food for thought that can impact some change. Listen, thank you so much for being a guest. I'm so glad that Frederick uh, introduced us and you sold me on, I, I have to admit, I haven't read your book, but you sold me on reading it within the first two minutes of the podcast. So I'll suggest that everyone grab a copy of that and learn more. Um, but where can people find you, the book, and is there anything else that you want to share with them? So just to thank you, Lindsay, for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation. So I have a blog, disorderedworld.com. So that's my blog. I try and keep writing um, <laughs> so people can find me there. Right. There's a, an email. You can contact me there as well. Perfect. Okay, we'll get all that into the show notes. And this is a topic that I really encourage people to go and do a bit more reading and learning on because I think if we focus too much at solely the societal level, solely the individual level, I think we miss um, some of the important patterns or links that we need to see to really... Uh, affect change. So thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Lindsay. For everyone listening and everyone who's so dedicated to coming back week after week to explore topics related to workplace communication, don't forget that if you're wanting to dive a bit deeper onto this topic, you can check out the six-part video series I've created, Free Yourself from Workplace Conflict and Confrontation, that's entirely free, and you can find that at lindsaylapaquette.com forward slash conflict. And with that, it's time to sign off for the week. I hope this episode has left you with a renewed commitment to yourself, to knowing who you are and standing tall in your values, while also leaving space for those around you, to choosing growth, courage, and empathy, even your most difficult leadership moments, to becoming the leader everyone wants to follow. We'll see you back again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Workplace Communication Podcast with Lindsay LaPaquette. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share and also leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. If your organization is looking to invest in elevating team performance by refining leadership communication skills, you can find more information about Lindsay's coaching, speaking, and consulting by visiting lindsaylapaquette.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.